We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 314 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 14, Moonwalk 1, Part 2. This is a CBS News special report. Ten years later, the flight of Apollo 14, sponsored by Tang, the nutritious breakfast drink for breakfast tomorrow, and Western Electric, the people who make communications equipment for the Bell system. Here again is Walter Cronkite. Ten years later, be precise, nine years and nine months since Al Shepard uh, made the United States' first flight into space. A little tentative step, just 115 miles up and thir- uh, 302 miles downrange from then Cape Canaveral. That same Alan Shepard uh, stands on the moon. He's just readjusted the camera, and uh, now he and his partner in the flight of Antares to the moon are unloading equipment packages and with these first color pictures from the moon we're watching as they go through their detailed highly sophisticated and refined chores on the moon the major portion of the first eva was planned to be spent on deploying the apollo lunar surface experiments package known as the alcep Of course, the ALSEP would remain on the moon to transmit scientific data to the manned spaceflight network on long-term physical and environmental properties of the moon. The plan was to use this data to correlate with known Earth data for further knowledge on the origins of the Earth and the moon. The ALSEP would be set up about 200 yards from the landing site. But before the all-sep work could begin, other activities had to be completed at the landing site. The first item was to set up the S-band antenna, which was a large parasol antenna used to improve communication signals from the moon to the earth, primarily for the TV. Here's Shepard and Mitchell aligning the dish with the earth. Okay, there's earth with there. Okay, coming down a little bit. Hold it. Back up just a bit. 
Mitchell then went back inside Antares to change a couple of switch settings so they could transmit through the S-band antenna. While Ed was in the cabin, Al sent the equipment transfer bag up the lunar equipment conveyor with Ed's contingency sample. Mitchell then loaded the cameras, film magazines, maps, and a thermal degradation experiment in the equipment transfer bag and sent it out to Shepard. The thermal degradation experiment was to evaluate the effects of lunar dust on the optical properties of a dozen different thermal coatings. The best coatings would be used in subsequent lunar missions on such items as the Lunar Communications Relay Unit, the Rover, the Television Camera, and the ALSEP. While Mitchell was loading up the bag, Shepard gave a rather lengthy description of the landing site. Here's an excerpt. While Ed is loading up the ETP, I'll uh, describe the general landing site. We are, in fact, in a, in a low area. Uh, there seems to be a general swale or a wide valley between uh, Next, Ed mounted the Lunar Surface 16mm camera on the Mesa for filming of the American flag deployment. CBS covered the event with Walter Cronkite, Wally Sherall, and special guest Buzz Aldrin.
Houston's in Houston with uh, Henry Edwin Aldrin. He's going to be with us for the next half hour or so. Colonel Aldrin, of course, was the second man to set foot on the moon right after Neil Armstrong on the flight of Apollo 11. And as I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I remember how thrilled we were when you placed that flag on the moon, the first American flag. What are your thoughts now? Well, in a way, I'd like to be up there with them with the opportunity to put that flag up. That really, uh, as I look back on it, has to be one of the most proudest moments that I ever had in my life. Is there, is there an urge to go again, Buzz? Oh, I think uh, any of us in the astronaut group would uh, give just about anything for another opportunity, but we have to be realistic and think in terms of uh, the opportunities that are available for us to uh, participate in the space program in, in other ways and the number of people that uh, have put in so much work and deserve their opportunity to go. It's a great uh, thrill being able to watch this uh, site up there in color, isn't it? The picture that I'm looking at is uh, extremely good. I'm quite, uh, quite pleased that we're able to get this back. Thank you, Buzz. We'll be, uh, we'll be getting in touch with you from time to time down there as this walk goes on. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Then, President Nixon called in to Mission Control with a message to the astronauts, and Deke Slayton relayed it to Shepard and Mitchell while they stood in front of the flag. Okay. Okay, uh, Al and Ed, if we could get you both in the field of view there for a minute, we've got a message for you. Okay, you're looking lovely, Coops. Why don't you take a pair and let me pass a message to you. Okay, okay. Okay. We were very pleased a few minutes ago to receive the uh, phone call here in Mission Control from President Nixon. Uh, he asked me to extend to you and Stu his best congratulations. He said that like millions of people all over the world, he is an astronaut watcher at this time. The picture is coming in very well at the White House, he said. The President said he knew how many thousands of people had worked on this mission, without whom men would not be walking safely on the moon. <clears throat> he asked that I wish the Apollo entire team well. The President said he was proud of you and proud of them. He sent you a wire just before the flight wishing you Godspeed, and he wishes you well on your return flight. The President also asked me to invite you to the White House for dinner and to spend the weekend at Camp David with your families after the mission is completed. Over. That's fine, Nick. Thank you very much. And we appreciate those kind words. Thank you, Dick, and convey our thanks to the President, please. Roger, will do. I don't think Stu got this, but we'll see he gets it later. Okay. At one hour and 15 minutes into the walk, the astronauts deployed the Mobile Equipment Transporter, also known as the MET. As they did, another one of the backup crew's beep-beep patches came out of it. Shepard, obviously annoyed, said it was hardly worth mentioning, and Mitchell agreed. Unlike the lunar rovers of the latter missions, which had wire mesh tires, the Met had rubber tires inflated pre-flight to 1.5 psi with nitrogen. 
Each of the tires was 16 inches in diameter and they were 4 inches wide. Okay, you ready? Get the wheels first. Running about nine minutes behind schedule, it was past time to offload the ALSEP packages. These were located in the descent stages Science Equipment Bay, also known as the SEQ Bay. The packages were slid out on a boom and then lowered to the surface with a lanyard. items included on the second all-set package was the hand tool carrier or HTC. You may remember this from Apollo 12 as Alan Bean had to constantly lug it around the moon. This time Mitchell mounted the hand tool carrier on the mobile equipment transporter which made it a lot easier on the lunar module pilot. With that complete it was time for the delicate maneuver of fueling the nuke. A small plutonium source was used to power the radioisotope thermoelectric generator that would provide electric power for the ALSEP experiments. It was housed in a cask which hung on the outside of the lunar module just to the left of the scientific equipment bay. Ed used a lanyard to pull the cask down into a horizontal position so that he could use a special dome removal tool to remove the dome-shaped lid. Al gave the tool to Ed, reminding him not to touch the dome. The fuel capsule temperature was about 1300 degrees Fahrenheit or 1000 Kelvin and would burn through the glove if either of the astronauts touched it. 
The dome was cooler than the element, but it was still something you did not want to touch. Now Al tilted the all-set package number two by 90 degrees onto its base as Ed used the long-handled fuel transfer tool to carefully remove the fuel element. He then walked slowly over with the fuel element, holding it out at arm's length over the thermoelectric generator to insert it. To make it easier to insert, Al tried to get the generator on a level piece of ground without going too far away from the cask. With the generator as level as possible, Ed inserted the fuel capsule. The whole procedure was completed in about three minutes. If we could pull it off of it, I touch it, pull it pretty hard. Guess what? Get down a little bit. Go a little wide right there. There we go. That's pretty good. Then Houston will lay it as well as the new tip fuel cast. Roger, report temp level. None of them. No tip indicators that are black. Yeah, take that. That'd be a bit throw there. Okay, it's open. Okay, is the cast ready? Okay. Barrel set. Light smoke, it's about as little as we can get from here. Okay. Okay, looks good. Alright, oh, more this way, there you go. They're reading on that. Two. Okay, I'll get it in a minute. Okay. Yeah, Houston, uh, all the temperature indicators are still white. Roger, Ed. You may have heard several temperature checks during that procedure. There was a device called a Tempo Label, which had a series of spots that changed from white to black at successively higher temperatures. That's what the astronauts were checking. To enable Mitchell to carry both ALSEP packages to the deployment site, one end of the ALSEP antenna mast was connected to package number one, and the other end was attached to package number two. In essence, the antenna mask was used as a barbell handle, which Ed was able to hold to carry the all-set packages. Next, Al and Ed determined a general location for the all-set deployment, pointed the TV camera in that direction, and loaded the MET with all the equipment they would need. After a time-consuming loading procedure, Shepard read out the contents of the cart to Houston for verification that they had everything. Okay, Houston, we'll start running down here. I think we're about ready. Yeah. That's a core two cup assembly, extension handle, two sets of, two sets of tongs. We have a thumper geophone anchor on the front. We have the tether, the gnomon, the hammer, and the scoop. Three core tubes, 35 black dispenser, close-up camera, two SESCs. 270mm camera with color exterior, 116mm camera in one mag, four-way bags, two maps, extra number geophone flag, large scoop is on, right, 
Alright, scoop is on, and we're taking the trenching tool with us. Okay, and uh, you should have uh, 16 millimeter and two mags. That's correct. We have a total of, I was just going to say, a total of uh, three mags. One is almost used, the other two are clean. Roger, looks good. We're At two hours, the crew is ready to move. After some fine-tuning of the TV camera to point it in the direction of their egress, Al pulled the Met and Ed carried the barbell in the direction of the all deployment site. Okay, I'll go pick up the barbell. The al packages turned out to be heavier than expected, and the barbell tended to flex up and down as Ed moved. Okay, I'm going to stop here and rest with Al leading the way, the two explorers headed in the direction of Dublin Crater, looking for a suitable site to deploy the ALSEP. Twenty-three minutes into Moonwalk One, about twenty-six minutes behind schedule, Shepard and Mitchell were ready to deploy the Alsip.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 314 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 14, Moonwalk 1, Part 2, Fueling the Nuke. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. If you are looking for old episodes, the first 144 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. should be available on all podcatchers. Well, in case you were not aware, we have entered the dog days of summer, a time when contributions to support the podcast reach their lowest level. In fact, if something drastic doesn't happen, the month of August will be the lowest month of the year. Perhaps you've been meaning to contribute for quite some time. Well, now is a really good time, and it's very easy to do. Head on over to the website spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time contribution or click the Patreon link to make small monthly contributions. Donors are rewarded based on the level of their contribution. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts. One of the things I found surprising about this episode was that Ed Mitchell actually went back inside the lunar module long before the end of the EVA. He went in to flip some switches and to collect some equipment. I wonder how much extra dirt got inside the limb from that little trip. Hope you enjoyed the clip from Buzz Aldrin. I thought that was really neat. The only thing that would have made it better was if Neil was there. And did you notice that Walter Cronkite once again mentioned the color TV picture? (laughs) And did you catch that it was sponsored by Tang? Okay, what made me the most nervous about this episode was, of course, the RTG, the uh, radioisotopic thermoelectric generator fueling. They had the fuel cast mounted vertically on the outside of the lunar module, and Ed could pull it down to a horizontal position to take the top off and remove the fuel capsule, which was very hot. Remember, he had to use tongs. Then he carried it at arm's length. I was wondering, what do you think would have happened if he had dropped the fuel capsule? Would they have tried to pick it up? and shake the dust off? Would the capsule still fit in the generator with the dust on it? Would that have ended all the all-sep experiments that required electric power? I don't know, but I'm sure that little procedure was a little bit nerve-wracking. Now, the last thing I want to mention is most of these clips were heavily edited. I took out the long pauses and the beeps, some of the beeps, and the irrelevant information. So it took a good bit longer in real life than it did on the clip, especially while loading the MET and the Traverse to the Allsep deployment site. Okay, this week I have included some extra pictures to better explain some of the events that happened in the episode. They will be at the website spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. 
We were pleased to receive several contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Paul P. from Melbourne, Australia donated at the Apollo level and earned a moon emoji. Matthew F. from Oakland, Tennessee sent in another donation and moved to the Salute Skylab level. Thomas K. from Delaware donated at the Mercury level. Per H. from Norway sent in another donation this year and moved to the Gemini level. Mike R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. And Cody A. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Thank you for supporting the Space Rocket History Podcast. We are now at 235 patrons with a goal of reaching 300 for 2019. Our total donors for the year have reached 395 with a goal of reaching 600 by the end of 2019. For the 395 of you who have already donated for 2019, we certainly appreciate it. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Per Hansen. Per Hansen, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we'll mail this out to you. Thank you to all 395 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for the past several episodes were Light This Candle by Neil Thompson, Smoke Jumper, Moon Pilot by Willie Mosley, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, The Internet Archive, CBS News, Apollo 14 Flight Journal, Project Apollo Archive on Flickr, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I'll try to have episode 315 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.